There is little question that technology, software, is shaping the future of our work, our play, and even how we form opinions. But who is shaping that technology? It's been quite an economic run. The stock market's been climbing for a decade. And in that time, tech companies like Apple, Google, and Amazon, Facebook have gone from underdogs to overlords. But even as that's happened, employees and observers have settled on a nagging question. Is there room for more women and minorities on the campuses and in the startups where this future is crafted? This is Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I am John Fort from CNBC. With me here on set at the NASDAQ market site this week, Anu Dougal, founding partner at Female Founders Fund, and joining me from Atlanta, Catherine Finney, founder and managing director at Digital Undivided, which encourages entrepreneurship among black and Latina women. And from San Francisco, Ruben Harris, the CEO of Career Karma and host the Breaking Into Startups podcast. Thank you all uh, for being here. Important stuff, I think. I, I knew when I first moved out to Silicon Valley, gosh, 20 years ago, um, it's dating myself, uh, there was this prevailing idea, this meritocracy myth, this idea, we don't see color, we don't see gender. If you're good, you'll make it here. Is that myth dead? I just called it a myth. <laughs> so, uh, great point. Um, I think that what we've seen, so, you know, Female Founders Fund um, is very much trying to address the, the issue that you've brought up, that diversity um, and the numbers around diversity really need to change. And the only way that you can do that is really by building a pipeline. And so we're a seed fund that invests in female founders often their first round of capital, help them raise their next round of institutional capital, and I'm now seeing our companies go on to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. So for us, what we really believe is that for change to happen, you need to put money in the hands of diverse founders, whether they are women or people of color. Now why? Because I think that what they do with that capital is two, is basically two, two things. So one, it um, enables them to have access and levels of playing field. So they get to hire great talent, they get to build great product, and to really show that um, it's possible as a, as a woman or as a person of color, once you're given those resources, to really build something significant. Mm. And so, you know, we've seen that happen in our portfolio, we've seen it happen outside of our portfolio. So there are more and more models and examples of uh, founders who've gone on to build companies that have gone public um, once they've gotten access to that capital. Uh, Catherine, why is this needed? Because the conventional wisdom had been money is money and a, a good investor, and there are such good investors out there, are going to put money into a good idea no matter who has it. If, if that were true, then this wouldn't be an issue, right? Well, I think one of the things that I would challenge is that this is inherently a money problem. This is more of an access problem. Uh, before you can even get the money, you have to build a company. And you have to have access to the training and services you need in order to build a successful money, a successful company so that you can go forth in front of amazing funds like the Female Founder Fund. And that's what we do at Digital Undivided. Um, we also know that the data is not really there, meaning the data even just tracking the number of women of color or women in tech and what's happening and their path through this space is not being recorded. And that's what we did with our Project Diane uh, a data initiative that started in 2016. We looked at what was going on with particularly black women founders. 
are they getting the money? If not, how are they funding their companies? How are they building their companies? And we found that black women founders were raising approximately $36,000 compared to mostly white, mostly male failed startups, which were raising about $1.3 million. So we weren't raising enough to even fail properly. We weren't even raising enough to get started to build our companies. And so that's something that we really address. We also know that it takes black women and Latinx women approximately two times longer to raise funds for their companies than it does for their white male counterparts. So during that period of time, how are they surviving? How are they thriving? And what are the resources that they're accessing? And that's what we address. So we take the step before you even mm. think about raising your seed fund is building your company and getting it to the point where you can actually get in front of amazing investors and receive the funding you need to grow. Now, Catherine, what some people struggle with is the idea that this is a problem that stretches outside of any one particular community. So the idea that is this a societal issue? Is this an American issue? Or is this an issue that certain communities need to deal with? Like, why is it in the general public good for individual communities to optimize their entrepreneurial potential? I mean, have you heard that question? Yes. And I think what it is, is inherently about this question of whose values matter, whose ideas matter, who do we value, uh, where are the new ideas coming from? The new ideas are not coming from the same traditional markets that investors have been looking at. They're coming from diverse communities. They're coming from people who are solving problems that many investors didn't even know was a problem but it is something that impacts those founders' lives. And that's what we see at Digital Divided with our founders. We have founders who are creating two-sided marketplaces for charter schools and substitute teachers who mm -hmm. are building blockchain IP platforms to solve music rights issues. I mean, all these things are things that you wouldn't necessarily know if you were you know, on Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley or if you were in Wall Street in New York City that were even problems. But they're problems, and not only are Digital Divided founders building companies are making money doing so. Yeah. Yeah. Re Ruben Harris, you moved out to the Bay Area some years back uh, with no job and got a job and wrote a blog post about it and it went viral. Tell, tell that story. How, how did you get involved in this idea of breaking into startups and now helping get uh, communities that aren't typically connected into this ecosystem connected? Yeah, so uh, in 2014, I learned that um, tech was taking over every single industry and it wasn't an industry anymore. So I bought a one-way ticket. I had a place to live for months and three weeks later, I found a job to uh, work in tech. I realized that investors invest in team more than ideas. And so it was very important for me to align myself with people that I knew well, that had a diversity of skill sets. So my co-founders came behind me they decided to become software engineers through coding boot camps. Um, I decided to focus on sales and distribution. Um, and I worked at three different startups from education, healthcare, and politics. Um, and after the story took off, people from all over the world started showing up asking what to do next. Um, after we launched the story, uh, we launched a podcast called Breaking Startups, like you said, to elevate stories of other people like me that broke in because we realized that most of these jobs are offline and come through referral. Um, hmm. And in order to get these jobs, it requires certain skill sets. And a lot of those skill sets are taught in places outside of elite, out, outside of college. Um, so that's when we discovered coding boot camps um, and created an app called Career Karma that helps people become software engineers in less than 12 months through an app 
that connects them with the right coding boot camps and surrounds them by the right peers, coaches, and mentors to not just get them into a job, but hold them down for the rest of their life. Um, and so I think, you know, given everything that you all have covered so far, um, I realized that I was not going to be able to raise funding if I did not have the right team first. I recognized that access to investors is very important, but what was actually more important for me was to actually launch something that had traction um, because investors really want to see that you have a viable idea and something that you can invest in. Um, and I also recognize that um, the cost to start companies is a lot lower than it used to be. And so you can create a, a minimum viable product without too much cost um, mm. to put yourself in a position to be able to raise money. Yeah. And I've been fortunate enough over this time period to get mentors that have helped me out throughout this space. And our goal is to have a billion people in 10 years. So. I, I know, does the Silicon Valley the power structure in Silicon Valley, the big companies, Sand Hill Road, the venture capitalists, et cetera. Do they get this? And what I mean by that is, I've heard over the years about the selection bias that sure. certain VC firms have. They, they want the Mark Zuckerberg, okay? The, the brainy kid who looks a certain way, who drops out of an Ivy League school or a prestigious school and goes off to start something. I mean, that's Zuckerberg, that's Steve Jobs, that's mm -hmm. Bill Gates. I mean, why wouldn't you bet on that is the idea. Is Silicon Valley still doing that or has it developed a narrative around finding women sure. who are also the right people to invest in? Yeah, I think great question. So there are a couple things that I think point to the fact that this narrative is changing. Um, I would say the first was um, the company Stitch Fix. So Stitch Fix went pu uh, public a few years ago. And uh, it was the company that I think most Valley investors were familiar with, but mm. didn't, you know, she didn't end up raising a ton of cash. And so I think what you saw in that case was an aha moment, um, very much to the fact that here was a business that had scaled tremendously, that um, had the potential to become a public company, run by a woman, um, catering to a primarily female demographic um, that a lot of these investors had missed, quite frankly. Mm. And so I think, you know, that was definitely a wake-up call. I think secondly, as part of the Me Too movement, I th and I think a broader um, increase in awareness around opportunities tied to women, you've seen almost all of these Sand Hill Roads road funds add a female partner. And so, you know, I think that's partly because they feel like deal flow-wise, there's just a different type of deal flow. But is it real? Pro I mean, Gina Bianchini just wrote something sure. about this, specifically targeting Kleiner Perkins, saying, hey, look a few years back at all the women you had sure. who are now gone, yeah. and now you add a couple women and call it progress. Is it really? So, I mean, I would... And also, it's not women of color, too, I would say. Right. In, in most of those cases, women of color were, were not included. So uh, go, go further with that for a moment, because there is a, a relatively new movement, women of color moving into angel and VC roles. I wonder, is there the feeling that that has the right kind of traction, the right kind of backing? Or, you know, we're in this period where there's a lot of money flowing, times have been good, the market's high. Is that trend at risk when we hit a downturn? Well, there isn't a lot of money flowing to women of color species. I think if you had candid conversations with the handful, because it really is just a handful of black or Latinx women VCs, they would tell you that it isn't a lot of money. Um, most of their funds, if you take a, a, a closer look, are micro funds. They're less than $5 million. They're not 
even over 10 million, not over 20 million. Um, they're not over 100 million, definitely. So there are these micro VC funds that are kind of throwaway money and they're not getting the real types of investment from LPs that you would see with others. So there is a trend for women, but that trend is not trickling down to all women. And I think also another thing I would bring up is about access. Um, when I talk to, to my white male friends out there um, who are successful startup founders or VCs, they never talk about how to attract investors. It's always like, I have this amazing idea and investors should want to come to me. Only when I talk with women and people of color do we center the investor in the conversation and not the startup founder and not the idea, not the entrepreneur. Is that because of the the, dynamic that, uh, you know, certain traditional looking entrepreneurs don't have that issue? Or is it is it a mindset thing? Ruben, jump in here on that, too, because you've been uh, for a long time talking to a lot of people in exactly this space about the dynamic and how to work uh, the system. Yeah, so I've been able to raise money from black women, from Arlen Hamilton, for example, and Jewel Burks, who were in Catherine's article. Um, to, to her point, there's not a lot of black women that have large funds, um, but there are a lot of women that are able to give capital to people. And I do agree that capital is very important. Um, access to capital is very important. I think there are a lot of people that are entrepreneurial. There's a lot of people that aren't built to be entrepreneurs that can align with entrepreneurs to build a company. I think that a lot of people that want to raise money or want to um, start a startup have never worked in startups before. And it's very important to understand how the game works, who the players are, what the pieces are, and how everything moves. And so I think that knowing who, who the black and brown women and the black people that are in positions to give money is important. Establishing those relations is important, but I think the biggest way to get investors' attention is by launching and having traction. And to Catherine's point, the investors will come to you, and you don't want to centrate around the investor. Um, and like my, one of my, my good mentors as well, Michael Seibel, he says, you are nothing until you launch. So you, you definitely want to be able to launch something to get the traction and be in a position where you can raise. And I would just add to that, you know, I think um, overall, when you look at the broader VC landscape, you know, we have a long way to go as it relates to capital going towards both minorities as well as women. Um, But we actually published our annual review today, which um, actually starts from the bottom up and looks at Series A. And so, you know, as as a founder, raising that Series A is really the first time you're taking true institutional capital. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we've been running this report for the last five years. In 2013 in New York, there was one Series A that was uh, led by a female founder. Mm -hmm. In 2018, there were 18. Oh, okay. So, you know, while the, the billions that are being deployed on a worldwide level don't reflect huge movement, what we're tracking is, you know, you have to start at the bottom. If you can't raise an A, you can't raise a B, you can't raise a C. And so I think that, you know, you have to recognize that this is happening. It's happening in New York. It's happening in L.A. It's happening in San Francisco. So um, there are small steps being taken. Obviously, a lot more can be done. And what about the pipeline? Because th- th- that's another issue that comes comes up when we talk about the the lack of women, the lack of minorities in tech. It's kind of a chicken egg thing. Sure. You know, well, you know, here are the places where we recruit from, here are the skill sets that we're looking for. Ruben was talking about boot camps and not necessarily having to, you know, think you're you're gaining those skills through, you know, Stanford, um, Berkeley, MIT, et cetera. What kind of progress do you see being made in the pipeline so that there are more 
entrepreneurs, more tech talent available sure. for that pool? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I think this goes back to my earlier point around more female partners. I think what we've seen, even in the last 12 months, is that the number of deals that these female partners have brought to their partnerships and closed on, where you know it's a case of a female-founded company maybe a you know, co-founder that's a male, um, where they've raised 20, 30, 40 million. Um, and it's really been the female partner that has um, kind of been the champion of, of these deals. And so I think that from a pipeline perspective, when you have a female investor who is getting access to deal flow and honestly, quite frankly, wants to diversify the pipeline, mm. you have more women reaching out to them. You have more diverse founders reaching out to them. And I think that, again, long way to go, but it just looking at the landscape and the types of deals that these women investors have done, to me, is, is a, a strong signal. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Catherine, what yeah. do you see moving the needle on pipeline? Because you went from Harriet Fund to, to, to what you're doing now. My sense is that pipeline was something that you wanted to focus on. Well, Digital and Divided actually started several years before Harriet Fund. So we started... Harriet Fund, based upon the work we saw with Digital Divided, in right. particular our Project Diane Data Initiative, which started in 2016. And so we focus on pipeline. That, that is what we do. And one of the things that we found was that you have to help people actually start and create the companies to then be able to be in a position to access capital. And if we don't have startups starting companies, if we don't have women of color, people of color starting viable startups with traction, with customers, with real revenue, then we're not going to have a pipeline from which funds can draw from. So what are the key pieces and to do that, though, to help people start companies? Well, I think one of the things you have to have people who understand the communities. Um, where successful black and Latinx women founders are located are not the same locations that successful white male <clears throat> founders are located. We found in Project Diane that traditional institutions like Stanford and Harvard and MIT don't kick out the same number of successful black female founders as institutions like Howard University, uh, UCLA, uh, institutions like that. So if you're looking as an investor for successful women, women of color founders, and you're using these traditional patterns of looking at only certain spaces, you're going to miss some of the most successful founders available. And that's what we found. So if you want to do that, you have to go to where they're at. And then also, I think there's something that I would challenge the, the venture community on. Maybe you're not the best ones to find the founders. Maybe it's partnering with organizations like Digital Undivided, or even going a little bit earlier in the pipeline and looking at women who are going to be coming out of Black Girls Code and mm. other organizations like that, mm -hmm. thinking a little bit differently. And so instead of you thinking that you can access the pipeline, maybe, and I know this is kind of controversial in the venture community, maybe saying we don't know and that we need to partner with organizations like Digital Undivided to help us find these folks and get them into the pathways that, that are needed in order to get them funding. Once again, this is Fort Knox, Rich yeah. Ideas, Powerful People. We're talking about diversity in tech and uh, what's working. Uh, Ruben, I, I want to know, you talked about sort of the unspoken rules and all of the feedback you got from that initial blog post, people wanting to break in. So tell me, over the years, what are the things that you've seen that people aren't doing enough, that there should be more of, maybe that larger companies, institutions should be putting capital behind 
that are working uh, to diversify the pipeline? Yeah, so th there's companies that have infinite money to hire, and then there's people that want those jobs. Um, I, th I think one of the most highly sought after positions is software engineering. Um, but if you think about like investing in pipeline, like you, what, what you talked about before, um, investors aren't going to invest in a tech-driven startup if no one's technical or you're outsourcing it. So if you think about universities, they're only graduating about 50,000 people per year. There's over half a million open jobs right now. And then in 2024, there's going to be 1.4 million open jobs and 400,000 people graduating from four universities, which means a million people have to come from alternative forms of education. As far as what's working, you know, there are companies that continue looking for signals like colleges and credentials and things like that, um, but there are a lot of companies that are actively creating apprenticeships. Um, there's people that are aligning with workforce development boards and government. There's people that are um, launching their own schools within their, their companies to build talent versus buy talent. So there's a big movement of building talent versus buying talent, apprenticeships and, and things like that. And I think, um, if you look at the, the, the companies that have investors, uh, that have a tech-driven uh, leader inside of it, a lot of them um, have worked inside of startups before. So when we're looking to invest in black and brown people, a lot of times you want people that have worked in startups before, and if people outside of tech don't understand how to get those jobs, it's very, it's very um, interesting. So I think something yeah. that's been working very well is apprenticeships. Uh, making sure that you have access to a lot of people, to Catherine and Anu's point, uh, because um, if Silicon Valley and tech is largely driven through relationships, it's very hard to identify other people that are like you that are in the space. So we need more people that aren't just in the investment community or the founder position, but even people in these recruiting positions. Because if you think about a recruiter's position in a hot company, they're getting thousands of resumes every day that a lot of times are inherently biased and are going to automatically filter out people for certain signals because they only have a certain amount of time. And the only way the people that actually have the skills are going to get the shot is, because, is if they go through alternatives. And mm -hmm. so having relationships with people that can vouch for you is good. And I think if you look at Wall Street, a good example is something like SEO or MLT, where they have this like diversity route for people to, to prove that they actually have the skill sets. And creating more routes like that uh, within startups, I think, is a good, a good model. Um, and I think we're going to see more of that. I knew uh, Silicon Valley John, doesn't really say... like that very much. I mean, sure. the, the idea of diversity-specific programs. It's like we, that was more in vogue in the 90s. I would argue it worked. That's how I got into journalism. But I wonder, are VCs willing to go far outside the valley. There was this movement toward, you know, the Midwest, the South, kind sure. of smaller cities. But, you know, it doesn't have to be a small city. To Atlanta, yeah. you know, to yeah. <laughs> just cities where brown people are. Sure. Does there need to be more of that? Is there enough of that? So I think that um, it's definitely increased over the past, call it, 12 to 24 months. Um, so whether it's Atlanta, okay, that's whether yeah. it's, you know, um, other cities in the South, we're seeing it um, in L.A. I think that... VCs are definitely more aware. And I think part of that is also driven by the fact that, you know, quite frankly, valuations in the Bay Area often tend to be, you know, egregious. And so you have interesting founders to, to the point that was made earlier in uh, kind of tier two cities that are solving problems that cater to specific demographics, have demonstrated traction. And I'm, I'm definitely hearing more and more VCs that are open to, uh, to traveling outside of their kind of core cities. Catherine? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we see it with a lot of our partnerships. Um, we hosted a, a group of 
VCs from Silicon Valley, from Google Ventures, from First Round, who came into our space in Atlanta. We have two spaces, one in Atlanta and one in Newark, and was really wowed by our founders. Um, we also have a, a partnership, a pathway partnership with Techstars. And we do a lot of work with Techstars around the country, not just in Atlanta. I would also point to what Steve and Gene Case and the Rise of the Rest Fund is doing as well, where they're touring pretty much every place outside of New York and, and the coast to really highlight and also fund companies that are building amazing startups outside of, of the two coasts. Uh, I think their next stop is Florida and Puerto Rico. So there are people who are definitely doing it. There are a lot of interest. Um, there needs to be a little bit more movement mm -hmm. and definitely a little bit more funding put behind it. Um, I think people are kind of dipping their toe uh, to sort of go outside their comfort zone and see what the result is. But there is movement. There is some positive motion in that regard. Well, it, it is an yeah. issue near to my heart. Uh, I knew uh, Catherine Rubin. I mean, I moved out to Silicon Valley 20 years ago. A couple years after that, wrote a story for the San Jose Mercury News, a series on exactly this issue, diversity in tech, put forth open records requests for the demographics of all the big companies. <laughs> Most of them didn't want to give them to me, but the needle hasn't moved that much on any of those uh, diversity lines in 20 years. So something's got to work. You guys are uh, making the effort. So continue to keep in touch uh, and see what's working. Thanks so much for being with us. This has been Thank Fort you. Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. We'll see you next time. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.